From the mountains to the coast, create memories, meet new people, and find your favorite wine, mead, or cider in NC. Download the NC Wine app or visit ncwine.org to plan your trip to North Carolina wine country today. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Joe. We're the NC Wine Guys. Welcome to Cork Talk. In this episode, we sit down with Mark Frislowski, the head winemaker at Childers Vineyards in Lexington, North Carolina. We had such a great conversation with Mark that we decided to make this interview a special two-part episode. Mark joined Childers right from the start when Richard decided he wanted to plant a vineyard and make wine in North Carolina. Mark has been an active force in the industry and has seen its growth over the past 20 years. Wine Class with the Wine Mountains is back. Jesse and Jessica talked to us about the very interesting flavor and aroma compound, lactones. This episode is made possible in part by a grant from the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council. You can learn more about the council by going to their website, ncwine.org. So sit back, pour a glass, and listen. So we're here today at Childress Vineyards with winemaker Mark Kozlowski. Mark, welcome to Cork Talk. Great. Thank you for the invitation. It's great to finally have you on Cork Talk. We've been wanting to do this for since we began, so it's, it's really good to finally get here and, and have you on the, call, on the podcast. Yes. So, Mark, tell us a little bit about yourself. Introduce yourself and tell us what you do. Mark Frislaski. I'm the winemaker at Children's Fingers. Very simple. <laughs> and Mark told us he was a talker beforehand. So, so maybe give folks a little bit of your background and how you got to Children's Fingers. You've been here since the inception of Children's Fingers, yeah, right? Um, yeah, my first meeting with Richard, you know, the goal was to talk him out of building a winery, which is always what you want to do because people have no, you know, it's, you know, from the outside, it's the romance and they all love this, but they don't realize you're in production, you're in farming, you're, you know, you have a day job and your night job because we do a lot of things at night. So you always want to, if you can't talk them out of it, if you can't talk them out of it, then it's a good thing. Mm-hmm. If you can't, then you got to go forward, which is, which is even a better thing. Uh, but I came here and uh, when there were still trees on this property and we cleared the cleared everything and um, you know here we are 18 19 vintages later and I'm still here which f- a lot of people find amazed like how long have you been here and I said well since there were trees <laughs> you know but I've been I grew up and um, as a as a kid on eastern Long Island and eastern Long Island you know it, it juts way out into the ocean and it was merely a summer area, it's beaches, and there were mostly row crops, vegetables. And then uh, back in the 70s, they started planting grapes. So as a kid, I found you can get a job in a winery and get off the school bus, go in home, change your clothes, and then go down to the winery. And anytime you got, showed up at the winery, they had something to do. So you could make money. Okay. So it didn't matter if you'd, you'd show up and work three days in a row and then take not work two days or work the weekends. And I would go in and, you know, you clean up and move pallets around or clean a tank or move barrels uh, and later learn about, you know, to work in a lab and do the lab tests, which is always seems like so sophisticated when you're like 16 years old that you can run some lab tests. And um, little by little, um, you know, and, and you guys know that it's once you're in this business, it's it, it's just such a fun business. You know, you have the agricultural end of it. You have the production end of it. You have the very social end of it. There's always food. Mm-hmm. You know, they're always eating well. Oh, yeah. There's good cuisine. So I fell in love with it. And, and there's always uh, wine, too. And there's always wine, <laughs> even at 16. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and so, you know, I started and, and never looked back. It was just always from that day on. 
So aside from just something to do, something to work, something to keep you busy, were you interested in wine? Oh yeah, I was very interested. My dad was my dad was very interested in wine. Uh, my dad uh, was a World War II vet, uh, and he spent two years in uh, Australia after World War II, and worked at a place called Yolumba, okay. which is an old, old, old place. So it was always the stories of my, you know, my dad, and, and um, so I, you know, had the interest, and in it. it's the kind of romance that you get from the, the generation before that. And, and we were glad to see that on on Long Island because as the you know similar to North Carolina as, as tobacco goes away up there uh, was mostly potatoes cauliflower cabbage kind of row crops because mm-hmm. there were a lot of immigrant uh, poles and a lot of immigrant Irish and and then you had the super high end uh, resort area where they're all beach homes and second homes so you had the income so more educated people more wine consumption and it became kind of a natural. Which is now where I grew up. There's 58 wineries within five miles. Holy cow, that's a lot. So, and it's a lot. And I it's mean, a small. I mean, it's not small, small, but it's you know a pretty tight area. Yeah, you only you only go one way because you went every other way. You hit water. It's a big yeah. peninsula, so it's water, 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 water. Yeah. And then it's all wine now. Every restaurant only carries local wine. The quality of the food has been improved because people drink nice. They want to eat nice. Right. You know, so that's kind of my introduction. And and I uh, I um, I did military service. Um, and I did two years of college and then did military service. And while I was stationed out at Fort Ord, California, I would go work at the wineries on either the weekends or days off and take leave. So I went down and I worked at, uh, Bonnie Doom with the original Randall Graham when he had it in uh, Santa Cruz. And I worked for a while at Dry Creek and I met this man named John Jaffe, who's the winemaker at, uh, at Dry Creek. And so then I came back, I went to school and did all that kind of stuff. And then was finishing part of my military service after I got commissioned as a lieutenant. And John Jaffrey called me up and he said, hey, um, I, I, I know you're, you're going to, in June, getting out of the Army, going into the reserve. He said, I'm taking a job as a, a new facility they're building on Long Island. Why don't you come and, and work with me? And I was like, well, I don't really know what to because that's where I'm from. So you don't want to go back. <laughs> I was looking, looking to like go. And uh, anyway, I went back uh, to work for him. He was a you know old Sonoma guy, graduated from UC Davis the year I was born. And uh, so he stayed a year, and then he was like, oh, I don't know. He, he, was, a, he was a California guy. So right. A little different. California was very life. different. Yeah, yeah. He's like, I can't take this. You know, he would, you know, because in California, everybody knows the industry, you know how things work. In places like New York at that time, and even North Carolina, you got to teach everybody. Mm-hmm. And it's painful sometimes because nobody knows what, how to do things. Anyway, so uh, he left after a year, and I stayed another seventeen years. Wow! So, when we got when I got there, we had uh, just less than twenty acres of grapes, and when I left, we were around twelve hundred and fifty acres. So we grew it too, you know. And one of the great things about it is that we we, when we were buying land originally, it was four or five six thousand dollars an acre, and then finally got up to ten and twelve thousand dollars an acre. And by the time I left, farmland was $100,000 an acre. Wow. So the value of what we did as we grew, we were very, very fortunate that we grew when we did grow. Um, and, you know, and, I, and it was a good name. And it was a good experience. And then it was just time to do something different. Sure. So that packed up and moved the family to North Carolina. So yeah. how did that go? And how, how, how did you go about, you know, advising Richard on... The plantings and the building of the winery and all of that. Well, in the beginning, um, you know, I was still in I was still in the Army Reserve, and 
so after 9-11, they were going through these deployments. And the deployments, sure. they, it just became, it became very difficult to be a reservist uh, and have a job and be deployed just constantly, you know, mm. packing up and going, packing up. Last year I was in, I did 131 active duty days wow. in the year. So it was real hard. For, for instance, my boss would call me and he'd say, we got a briefing to move units to, you know, to Iraq or something. They got a meeting next Wednesday in Kuwait, and you have to, you know, brief on these units. So I'd have to go on active duty the very next day. Mm. And we had a unit in Dallas, Texas. We had a unit in Flint, Michigan. So I'd take some of my captains, send them out, get all the vital information, come back. Then we'd fly to Kuwait, and it would be an 11-day thing. I'd be away or to Heidelberg, Germany, or it would be a Kandahar or something like that. So it became – it was very difficult to do that. Um, at the same time, you know, after 9-11, a lot of things changed. And, uh, and um, Richard had called me, you know, wanting to maybe do this plan. And, and, uh, but I had been working for Hennessy Family. I had been working for as a, a blending team for Maker's Mark. I had, had a lot of really good things going on. And so Richard said, well, thinking about building this winery. And, and, uh, and the last place I wanted to move to was Lexington, North Carolina. I, was like, <laughs> <laughs> I said, Richard, I worked really hard to get where I'm at now. You know, but, you know, you guys have met Richard before. You know what a, you know, he's just right. a, if you want to be in any kind of business with anybody, sure. he's just the nicest guy. Oh, yeah. He's got a vision. Uh, but more important to anything, he's got a, uh, that interest and that desire to make a really good glass of wine. Sure. And, and yes. so for a person in my position, that's if, if that's the most important thing. Yeah. And so I agree to do it. And, you know. And he also loves his state and, and wants North Carolina to show. Yeah, he does. Because so, yeah. I said that to him. I said, how much do you want to spend? He said, I don't know. I'm thinking, you know, probably put $20 million in or something like that. I said, just go to Napa and buy a place. Just buy a place in Napa. Yeah, hundred dollars a bottle, yeah. and, yeah. and, and you know, but the idea is to try and talk them out of it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Because you know, this is such a dedicated thing, and you want to make sure that you know, it, you know, you hit the at least hit the ten year mark and are still moving forward that you don't lose interest. Mm-hmm. And so he's he had the full interest in doing it, and, you know. So, and then it, then it was going to be um, how do we overcome all the obstacles that we have currently in North Carolina that there's no brand, zero brand. And not only is there no brand, uh, here's a NASCAR guy, you know, that's going to build a winery. So let me, come on. Yeah, you know? right. And um, Things working against you. But. Yeah, a lot of things working against us. So, you know, and, and we were eager to do it. And in the beginning, Richard thought, you know, let's just make dry reds and a couple whites. And I said, listen, Richard, you're not making wine for you. You're making wine for the public. Right. you got to think mm-hmm. about who you are and the fans. And he said, well, I really don't, really don't really want to think about making sweet wine. I said, well, what are all the fans going to do when they show up here if they're not wine drinkers? Right. You have the ability to, more than anybody else, in, on the, almost on the East Coast, to turn people on to wine. To, to, to get, you know, people that say, I never drank wine. Maybe I'll try it now because I mean, Richard's drinking wine. So. And so I think we've made more of a difference in that, that he had that ability, which nobody else would. And then it's finding out what do you do, what are you going to grow, what grows well. Um, we're doing now more, you know, some more Italian varieties that never were on the radar in the beginning, Albarino and some Spanish varieties. But that's the evolution of the industry. Trial and error, try Syrah. We, we made in the beginning some beautiful Syrahs, but Syrah just didn't grow well here. Yeah. You know, so what are you going to do? You move on, you do something else. Uh, now we're trying some of these more uh, Pierce's resistant varieties to find out, you know, where's the future? You know, what's going to be the future here? What's the style? Of course, we do some muscadine wines. We're doing some fruit wines. 
sparkling wines, counter pressure wines, and but things will change, you know. So let's let's talk a little bit about that. So when you first came here to North Carolina, how much did you know about what they wanted in the wine industry or what the wine industry was doing? Well, I didn't, you know, I'd spent time at Fort Bragg, so I knew North Carolina. Uh-huh. I at least knew North Carolina. Um, and I looked at the demographics. I looked at um, climate. I looked at soil. And, uh, and it all looked pretty good on paper <laughs> until I found out you get about three inches of rain, you know, evenly spaced throughout the year, a little bit less in the fall, which is good. What I didn't realize is you can get three, three inches of rain all in one day. Yes. <laughs> I was like, yes, oh, boy. Can. You know, so, um, so the, our Achilles heel that I found out over time here is, is spring frost. Mm. And that I didn't see on the radar. Uh, last year we had seven frosts. So it, it's, it's, it's difficult. So we're looking now at what, what we can do to mitigate that. And, and a lot of those are not specifically frosts, but they're freezes. Right. We get down to 22 degrees. So it's not like you can do some wind machines and stuff to move, change three degrees. From, so from 22, I mean, there's not much we can do. Yeah, that's when you get like damage to the actual yeah. structure. Yep. You start seeing, you know, vines are, are, you already have osmotic pressure and you have water pushing out through them. They're totally, you know, growing. And then they get so-called a split. Mm-hmm. So you don't have just loss for that year. You might have three or four years worth of loss. But, you know, we're learning. And, it, and it's, uh, you know, grapes are very sustainable. They're, they're, they respond like rose bushes. That There's a lot of things you can do to adjust them and tweak them and prune them and slow them down or speed them up or adjust the nutrient level. So, you know, we're on our toes. So, so do you feel like the, the spring frost and freeze pressure is increasing because we, we seem to have winters that – we have these big warm spells, and then it cools off a little bit, and then. I mean, you can. It, I mean, it can be. I don't know enough over to see it over time. Uh, for for instance, uh, the growing season of 2020, uh, and I'm just talking the general numbers because right. each little climate area has a little bit sure. different microclimate. But just generally, we ended the year 2020 growing season 21 inches over average rainfall. 2021, we were four inches below average rainfall. So, I mean, the swing of that yeah. is just mm-hmm. tremendous. Right. Yeah. So, it's not like some places where they get a quarter of an inch of rain or whatever. So, we, we had a lot of rain. Um, so, luckily, you know, it's North Carolina is hilly. You want to plan on, on more than, a, uh, let's say, a seven-degree slope. So, you shed a lot of that water. Now, you know, so it's, it's, it's always going to be a challenge. And we're, we're much more European in our, in our growth and climate in conditions here than we are West Coast. Mm-hmm. West Coast right. and dry. Right. But but you know, there are some, you know, Bordeaux, which I spent time in Bordeaux, uh, it's not the best place in the world to grow grapes, but they make wonderful wine. So that's what we're gonna be challenged to do here. You know. And they'll do it over time. It's just it's dedication. It's it's not who made good wine last year, it's who makes good wine every year. That's true. true. So true. Bordeaux has hundreds of years on us. So it's hundreds of years. <laughs> It's time again for Wine Class with the Wine Mouths. Jesse and Jessica, welcome back. Thanks. Thanks so much. So what do we have to learn about today? Today we're going to be discussing lactones. Is that a band or? Uh, no, you stole my line. <laughs> <laughs> it was just too easy. I know. It's so obvious. Like if I ever form a, a wine themed band, it's going to be the lactones. Okay. All right. Uh, well, tell us what they great. are then. <laughs> Um, so lactones, some of the science behind of the compound, the chemical formula is C10H14O2. 
O2. And if you want a really, really deep dive, lactones are also esters, which we've talked about, and they're also terpenes, <laughs> which we've also okay. talked about. So we have gone so far now into our journey into flavors and aromas and chemical compounds that we are in subgroups. Um, but they these are six carboxylic esters, and they are formed, well, I don't want to give too much away just yet. They're formed, and they naturally occur in various fruits, from apples, oranges, grapefruits, and, of course, grapes. So they're naturally occurring, and then there's more that I will let Jesse discuss. But the name lactone was coined back in 1844 by a French chemist, and he first obtained it as a derivative of lactic acid, so hence that name, gotcha. um, lactone. It was also isolated as an essential oil metabolite in koala pea back in 1975. I'm not sure what they were doing in the 70s, but um, Probably lots <laughs> it was of things. isolated there. Um, and it was discovered several years later, from 1975, by another researcher in white wines and renamed at that time wine lactone, which is truly a monoterpene. And this chemical imparts a coconut, woody, and sweet odor to wine. Okay, like all of that. And so there's eight possible different isomers or arrangements that this lactone can take, and they're not all equally important. There's one, not going to quiz you on this, but it's the 3S, 3AS, 7AR isomer, and this is the only one that's been found in wine. And it has a very potent odor. Again, I'm revealing too much about the... uh, threshold, but uh, we'll talk about that in a minute as well. But it, it has a very potent odor and is an important part in wine. Okay. Seems like a lot goes on with that. So tell us a little bit more. So let's dive into the actual winemaking, grape growing, where it's found. So as mentioned, lactones are naturally occurring. You know, they can, there's different lactones. There's gamma lactones, delta lactones, and the Gamma and delta lactones are esters, correspond to fatty acids. And so they contribute to aromas of fruits, butter, cheese, and other foods. But the main thing with wine that that we get lactones is that lactones are present in oak wood. So that is how they contribute to wine. Um, They contribute to the flavor profile of barrel-aged beverages. So, you know, while they're naturally present in the grape, we're not getting the flavors at a threshold from the grape at all. So everything we get in wine would be from lactones that are present in oak. So we're only getting it in wines that mostly have seen oak. So that makes it a secondary aroma compound then? Yes. Excellent. Yes. Um, Something interesting too, the lactone rings occur widely in nature as building blocks. So we see them in ascorbic acid, hormones, enzymes, neurotransmitters, antibiotics, anti-cancer drugs, progesterone. So they exist all across the board. Mm -hmm. That seems like they're in everything. Yeah. That's been fascinating with all these aromas is that Mm -hmm. everything we've pretty much talked about is naturally occurring across the board. Like it's not specific to wine, but it does something very specific to the aroma in wine. So the lactones, you know, it's, it's in the grapes, but it's not necessarily like the wine lactones not produced in the grapes. It's produced during the wine maturation in the barrels. 
and it has been suggested some studies show that the wine lactone concentration increases as a wine ages. So this is one of those like opposite of some of the ones we've talked about, but this one actually increases as it ages. That's a very fascinating thing because I know we mentioned with like with esters and with terpenes that uh, with either temperature or with time, it definitely goes way down and reduces. Mm -hmm. Right. And so with this one, there's not much, I mean, it's in the barrels, right? So there's not much a winemaker, grape grower can do to impart this aroma. The only thing to be considerate of would be your oak barrels. So European oak tends to be more dense, which means they have closer spaced rings, which actually imparts less oak lactones because it's tighter. So American oak would give you more of these lactones. And if you think about its main aroma, which is coconut, you know, American oak is the one that's more associated with that right. aroma profile. That makes so much sense. <laughs> and then obviously size matters. So the larger the barrel, the less you're going to get because there's less contact. So, you know, if you want that coconut aroma, that lactone, then you're going to want to pick American oak. Very cool. I mean, and it, that really does make a difference too. And you can think through uh, if you talk to the winemaker, just the different oaks that they might use, you can definitely see the American oak versus the European, the Hungary, the Hungarian rather. So tell us about some of the thresholds that are perceived or the perceived thresholds with this compound. Sure. So, you know, there's the different isomers and then there's the one, which to repeat, the 3S, 3AS, 7AR <laughs> isomer. <laughs> is the one that we see in the wine lactone. And it has a odor detection threshold of 10 nanograms per liter. That same lactone isomer in the air itself, the threshold is 0. 0.00001. So it's interesting that in the air, the threshold is much lower than in wine. Hmm. Just goes to show you how more, how much more sensitive your uh, aroma sensors are with air as opposed to a liquid. Very cool. So, how do we make the most of these? Well, you would want to play them up, right? So, you're going to be selective about what you might pair them with or how you would present them. And one pairing that stood out to us would be a diverts demeanor because this has that woody tropical aspect to it and was one that came up as we were doing our deep dive into lactone research. And so Gewürztraminer is going to play really nicely that woody tropical characteristics with some Indian Middle Eastern dishes and then to the more of the oak barrel lactone aspects, you would, what comes to mind of course is an oaky Chardonnay. So what's going to go with an oaky Chardonnay? Pretty much any buttery seafood dish, but a standout that came to mind was crab legs dipped in melted butter. Um, could be a good one, so plan that aspect up. I totally see that one. We, uh, we're we big fans of Chardonnay, as anyone who follows us knows, and we'll have it pretty much any time with most mm -hmm. things. So yes, that would be a good pairing for sure. Or an oaky Chardonnay with some sort of cream dish with mushrooms is always a favorite mm -hmm. as well. Anything else about lactones that you'd like to impart on us? When's our band practice? <laughs> <laughs> I play the recorder. <laughs> and play the recorder is, is um, but, you know, it's being generous, but 
Well, Jesse, this has been really informative. We now know something a little bit more about a subclass of one of our previous aromas, and we'll be looking for the lactones the next time we taste a wine. Sounds great. Thanks for having us. Excellent. We'll talk to you again. You can find out more information about the Wine Mouths by going to their website, winemouths.com, or on Facebook and Instagram at Wine Mouths. That's W-I-N-E-M-O-U-T-H-S. And now, back to the show. So how many acres are under vine here on the on the uh, property where the winery is? The I actual think there's 42 or 44 here, something like that. And then another almost the exact same at Richard's house. Wow. Okay. That's, I mean, that's a decent size. So. Yeah, it's a decent size. And, and what we haven't grown in uh, probably the last six or seven years, because we work with so many custom crush clients, that I do, you know, I, you know, we sh- we really spent a lot of time because in the beginning, Richard said, "What do I do? Just grow, but just plant everything?" And I said, "No, no, no, no. What we want to do is we want we want to really balance the ability to um, market all the fruit in North Carolina that's currently grown, and the more people we have doing that, the better. We could just plant and, and not do any barter trade or purchase from anybody else." But it's not the right thing to do. The right thing to do is if you have somebody else over here that wants to plant, you know, six acres of grapes, but they're only selling three acres worth of wine, mm. you make it right. and you barter with them. You trade for grapes, you trade for – and we've done that very, very successfully. So we, we barter and or trade or make almost another 1,000 tons worth of grapes from all these small growers. And, um, you know, somebody told me the other day, they said, wow, that's a really noble thing for you to do to help all these people out. And uh, and really, the idea is not the noble thing to do. It's a very selfish thing to do because I can then uh, control the quality of the fruit. Um, and if, let's say, Anson County or somewhere up in Henderson County or someone up in Person County doesn't have a frost, then we have a frost that balances out my fruit. For the sure. Year. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's much it's a very not a, it is in a way a selfish thing, but it's a way to make sure that there's no excess grapes on the market and that we can slowly increase the, the value of the grapes. Yeah. See, if a farmer doesn't make, if they're making money, then he's not going to do it for very long. Right. So if I'm buying grapes from you, and I'm giving you the lowest price, then after a couple of years, you're going to say, you know, there's, not, there's nothing here for me yet. Right. I don't want to do it's it. It's a lot of work. So it's a lot of work. So my idea is to convince you into making wine. So I could do a custom crush and do a barter. Helps me, it helps you. But then you can become profitable. You can build, have your, take your barn or whatever, make it into a taste room, and you can become profitable. Sure. So it really helps the industry. So it's taken a while for a lot of people to, to um, discover that formula. But now that people know that, we're really all in it together. And you guys see that from the Wine Growth Association. Well, there's more sharing that goes on at those things. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's important. So speaking of the industry and the Wine Growers Association, talk a little bit about some of the other things that you're involved with in the industry. You're, you're big player and a big reason the industry is where it is today, in my opinion. Um, so talk about some of those other activities outside of just Childress that you're involved yeah. with. Well, we, I, you know, I'm on the, the Grape Council, and I've been on the Grape Council continuous since 2003. Um, and, you know, there was, you know, there's a couple older players that are no longer players in there that, um, you know, and, and, and see, I understood. See, I was in the, I've been in the wine industry my whole life, and I've, I understand some of the formulas. Not that I know any more than anybody else, but I just understand that the wine business is very unique and is very different, and that our brand 
is, is Childress Vineyards. But more importantly, our brand is North Carolina wine. And so when you think of Bordeaux or when you think of Burgundy or you think of Napa, there's, oh, you might have your favorite wine, but no winery dominates. It's the region that's the dominating thing. It's mm. Napa. Right. I'm going to Napa. Exactly. I'm going to visit this one and this one. And um, so the wine business is very different from you know, either the cigarette business or the soda business in that we have very, or the beer business, that there's no real brand loyalty in the wine business. Whereas if you drink a Budweiser, you drank Bud, somebody gave you a Michelob, you'd give it away. You wouldn't no, even drink it. Yeah. So, but wine business, you're like, I want to try Sauvignon Blanc. And you go out to dinner and you, you open it up and go, ooh, they have a low dice in. Let's try a low dice in. So we have to, if you understand that, a lot of people build a winery and they would think, everybody's going to drink my wine. It's not. They're going to visit, people come here, they visit Childress and four other wineries, and then they go back to Charlotte. So um, I got on the Grape Council, um, and, and we're trying to do things that facilitate the branding of this business. Um, and I've also been working with, the, um, I mean, now the third time I've been president of the Wine Growers Association, and we really spend time on the camaraderie, the sharing of information, the inclusion of everybody that could possibly get in this business whether they only want to make 100 cases of wine and, and from purchase grapes locally or they want to build a big facility. Uh, I'm also on the Muscadine Association, you know, and uh, I'm trying to get everybody to understand there's not this us and them. It's we're together. Sure. You know. So, I, you know, whatever. I'm trying to try and be. I learned, uh, you know, very early in my career um, that you can generally, you know, if, you want, if you're willing to put in the work, there's always room for you there. Like on most boards, you have people that don't want to participate or they don't want to do anything. And so I'm usually the loudest person, so I get my way. <laughs> and I can rope everybody in. I'm really good at roping everybody in. Like, oh, crap, what did, what did, they, what did they get me into? Persuasion is a good thing. But it's fun. This is fun business. Oh, yeah. yeah. So just a few minutes ago, you mentioned that our brand is North Carolina wine. So how would you describe what North Carolina wine is. I mean, a lot of people who listen are in the industry, but what would you say is like the brand representation of North Carolina wine? Well, it, and, and for us, more than any other region, I think it's difficult to answer. It's very difficult to answer because, um, uh, you know, here we grow the Vitus vinifera. So, and, and, and you know that you've tasted a lot of the wines. There's some really good wines. There's, there's, in a new young wine region, you're always going to have some that aren't either aren't well made or should have been made into something else, and that's natural. That's mm. just the way it's going to go. But also now we have a lot of hybrids that are grown here, mm. and, and 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 we have a lot of muscadine that's grown here, uh, the Vitus rotundifolia. Now you have some wineries that are doing a little bit more in strawberry. They're doing some blueberry. North Carolina grows, in my opinion, some of the best blackberries in the world. Oh yeah, blackberries are just out of this world. So there's a market for that. So as long as you make a wine, doesn't matter if you're not a sweet wine drinker, it doesn't bother you. You'll drink something else. But they all should be crafted well. They should be presented well. They should be they should be a nice looking package. Uh, it's, and we want to really turn this into a professional industry where it's profitable for the farmers, it's profitable for everybody else. Now to pinpoint any specific thing, what is our brand? Our brand is almost like we can do we can do it all. And meads now. There's a lot of meads being right. produced. So you know, in a lot of some other regions where they only focus on, you know, I think in Oregon they got it so easy because they just focus on Pinot Noir and heck with everything else. Yeah. Everything else is second. So it's very easy to develop that brand. Where here it's a little bit tougher, and I don't have the answer to it. And we struggle with that. We struggle with how do you how do you um, 
I mean, Duplin's one of the top 50 biggest wineries in America. Right. And so how do you say, well, North Carolina, we don't want to make sweet wine. It's not fair to Duplin. Duplin's a tremendous business model out there. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're laughing all the way to the bank. And so... It, so it's right, and because there is a market for that, a huge market so. for that. They have two of the top ten selling wines in the state. Wow, are Duplin wines, mm. and have been for the last fifteen years. And that's because you can find them anywhere, right. and people like sweet wine yeah, and sweet tea. Yeah, that's exactly. Right. Sweet tea. I mean, I grew up on sweet tea. I'm yeah. a native North Carolinian, mm. so. You know, so you know, so it is. That's why. That's why a lot of times when we sit down, and who's our target audience? You know, and so they'll do all these studies. Our target audience is anybody with a credit card that's over the age of, you know, 21. Exactly. And you see it here all the time. I see old ladies coming in with walkers, and then I see, you know, girls coming in together on Girls Saturday, coming to drink wine and all dressed up. And we have a really, really big African-American business now. So this room, this room, it's, you know, it's everybody. People drink wine. Yeah, so maybe the brand is, there's something for everybody. There is. That's <laughs> what we work towards. I think that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and why not? I mean, it's not a personal thing. People say, oh, do you like making sangria? And I say, yes, as long as we make money on it, it helps us plant more Albarino. Right. Mm -hmm. I'll take it personally. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's, it's just make it, try and make it nice. Try and make it good. If you're making a rosé, you just want people to go, wow, this is really well balanced. It's got a nice finish. It's just got a nice texture to it. Even though it's a, a rosé and you're really not, you know, you're rated on your red stuff. That's the only problem with everybody. You're rated on the the dry so I rate you on all all those things: rosé, <laughs> whites, and reds. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, in talking about, I mean, so what is the case production for Childress? And then I know you make in the custom crush. Like, how many we're, cases we're, are you producing out of the winery every year? Uh, around a hundred thousand. Wow. Uh, and and it's but the, the business model is we've we're making so many of the smaller wineries right. profitable. Sure. And that's really what the goal was in the beginning. Rich yeah. and I said, Richard. You know, he, he said to me, you know, uh, the first meeting we had, you know, I said, what are you trying to do out of this? What, what, you, what is your thing? You know, and truly the guy loves red wine. He loves yeah. wine, but he loves red wine. Uh, and, and I thought, that's a rarity because, I, you know, you work for a lot of these people that are scotch drinkers mm -hmm. right. or they're just into the marketing end of it. So he's uh, and he and he really wanted to help save the family farm. He grew up in the area. He felt it. He felt right. the loss. So he said, whatever we can do to help save the family farm. Which it doesn't have to be, you know, like somebody's out there growing tobacco and all of a sudden they convert it to grapes. What it may maybe is more so is their grandson or granddaughter will then keep their day job, go back to the farm and plant three acres of Chardonnay. Mm. And so that's what sort of the formula is. Very few, you know, it's like somebody is a plumber, if, for instance, and they say there's no business of plumbing. Now I'm switching to be an electrician. So it, it usually there's not the switch. It's usually the next generation yeah. or, or or somebody that does it. And so we we've targeted that. So we'll you know and we'll continue to grow and you know we're putting in new crush equipment this year. We're putting a new bottling line next year. We have two bottling lines now. We do a regular one and a counter pressure line. So it's it's you know it's kind of seeing the future. You know you're thinking five years down the road, but it's been good so far. I mean North Carolina right now is I, I don't see many places in the country that are as attractive as North Carolina is from a business sense to start a winery. There's very few places in California where you could go and either buy a winery or start a winery and make it profitable. Because, you know, Finger Lakes is still pretty good. 
until you go there in the wintertime. And then you're like, ah, right, I don't yeah. think I'm going to do that. I don't think I'm going to go south. <laughs> and they're you're talking now. about 23 yeah. degrees. Yeah. It's like 22 below. Yeah, so you're like, forget like, that. Yeah. So North Carolina now, that's why Autumn Creek is recently sold. And you have a few other people looking at properties. Because, uh, you know, I moved here in 2003 and the state has grown in population by a million people. Wow. I think we still have some politic issues here that we got to fix, you know? Yeah, certainly. But, certainly there's there's a lot of division and something. I was listening to another podcast earlier this week, though, talking about the number of economic uh, uh, announcements that have happened in the, over the last year. Uh, the new car plan for yeah. Chatham County, the Toyota and their, their electric battery plan, I think, for the Triad sonic boom and that sort of thing and it's talking about how yes we have divided government but somehow or another this governor and this legislature have figured out how to work together yeah. on economic issues so i think that is one thing that we can you know feel a little bit comfortable about and it's gonna it be is starting to happen. it's gonna be like george it's gonna be forced on us yeah mm-hmm. yeah exactly exactly and like we I, do have to we, we need to tone down and we need to we need to be able to work together and because it's only for the common good and that's what's important. So or, or somebody's I applaud them both for being able to do yeah. that. Otherwise, they're going to be they're going to be disappointed when it changes before their eyes. And it's gonna, exactly it's going to. I think exactly. we're we're behind on quite a few of the social issues, but you know it's it'll get there. But but it's going to grow. You know, people yeah. are, people are going to move, and not only they're going to move, but we're going to we're going to have tourism driving through our state. All sure, the time. we're in a prime location on the east prime coast, location. right in the middle. And right now, the price is right for farming. The price is right to get into the business. So uh, I think you're going you're to see more uh, substantial investment coming in. Uh, that's smart. Yeah. So let's go back and talk about grape varieties. So you mentioned some of you mentioned Syrah, how it was worked out well for a while, and then it was like, eh, it became a yep. little di- bit difficult. We've heard over the years, Syrah is very vigorous, so you really have to baby it and tame it to, to get a good crop. So what are some varieties that seem to work well, and then now you don't think so, and then now you've talked about some of the newer varieties or different varieties from Spain and Italy that we're starting yep. to see. What are some of those differences, and what do you see the future well, is for some of those? You know, one of the big challenges in in North Carolina is uh, is ripeness levels on right. certain years, mm. and so there are certain varieties specifically have characteristics uh, that either need to be um, uh, eliminated or hidden in a finished wine. One of them, of course, is this methoxypyrazine thing, this greenness yep. that right. you get in, in, in certain grapes. And so over time, we know that this methoxypyrazine component is translocatable within the vine at certain times. So what I meant early when I said that you know vines are easily manipulated, like our roses, um, now we're finding out these techniques we can do to knock that greenness out. Not in every year, but uh, the difference between a young winemaker... And an old winemaker is the young winemaker wants to make a reserved wine every year. The old winemaker knows he can't or she can't. So you say on, on certain years when everything falls into place, you make reserve. In other years, you make rosés or sparklers or whatever. Um, and so, so we learn in the varieties that we can't adjust the methoxypyrazines because you can't fool a consumer into a reserve wine. Just it's it's crazy, and, and and so I wish people would forget that idea. Instead of saying, "I want fifty dollars," and you taste it, it's too thin, it's too light, it doesn't have the ripeness, and and you're just hurting yourself. So um, we're, and we're looking at now other varieties um, because for mo- for wineries that just sell directly retail, it doesn't matter what variety you grow. 
you can sell it. For people who are going to put the wine on the shelf, it's more difficult because if they never heard of the grape, then it's hard to pick it up and, mm-hmm. and do it. So if they can, you know. So we're looking at, um, that, so then the next level of grapes is grapes that lose this greenness at a much lower level of ripeness. And so we're finding out that grapes like Montepulciano and Sangiovese don't need to be 23, 24 bricks every year. That if you get to 19 and 20, they make very, very good wines. Hmm. Uh, so we're finding some some varieties, and and, and and there's so many varieties out there. And so 20, 30 years ago, you couldn't sell Sangiovese. You couldn't sell the, a lot. But now a lot of those grapes are there, and, and you can. So, you know, the, the, the bad thing about it is, and we were t- I was talking with a grower the other day, and he said, yeah, I'm thinking about planting Monty. I said, yeah, that's a good idea. Monty would be good. He said, yeah, I could use that in my. So I said, you know, if you, if you find the right clone and the right rootstock, we could plant in it in 2023. If you can't, then you got to wait till 2024. Mm-hmm. Then 2025, 26, 27, and 28, you can release it in 2029. <laughs> and he's yeah. like, "What? It's a long-term investment. It's so long. But if you yeah. don't do it now, you don't, right. you know, never get there. It's like yeah, your right. 401k. If you don't put money in now, it's nothing to get other end. Yeah. So it is a slow, very patient business. So there are a lot of neat varieties out there. We're doing some black Spanish, which is um, a Pierce's resistant variety that has a but like a 92% parentage of Vitus vinifera, hmm. but it's Pierce's resistant. Oh, that's cool. And so Frost and Pierce's are the two things right. we have to worry about in North Carolina. There are things that hurt us, and then there are things that put us out of business. So we have to look at the things that would put us out of business, which are, which are these freezes and Pierce's. Yeah. The rest, if you get too much rain one year, you still make pleasant rosés and sparklers. And, you can get by. You can get by. Yeah. That's it for this episode of Cork Talk. Thanks again to Mark for hosting us for this interview. We had a great time visiting Childress and the conversation was great as always. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. It helps others find Cork Talk and lets us know how we can improve. Did you know we have a Patreon page? You'll get patron-only content, early access to each show and more when you sign up. You can find more information at patreon.com slash corktalk. And don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NC Wine Guys. And stay tuned next month for the second part of this episode. Until next time, and remember, the cork only talks when it's out of the bottle. Cheers. Cork Talk is a free run LLC production. This episode is made possible in part by a grant from the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council.